Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. If you are using the Pew Bible this morning, we'll be on page 1046. Uh, and as usual, if you have any questions as we work our way through this this morning, you're welcome to jump on slido.com and type in the code REVCDA and anonymously, if you want to, ask a question, and we'll take a look at those at the end this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you are good to us. You are gracious and kind. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We are so often um, distracted by everything that's going on in the world, in our lives, in our jobs, in our families, that we forget that. We forget that we are beloved children of the King. God, I pray that you would remind us of those things, that you would remind us of the gospel that we have believed, the good news about Jesus, that you would, uh, for, for those of us that are, that are weary, that we, you would bring energy and, and reinvigorate us with hope. Um, God, I pray for um, our friend Emily this morning and uh, just the the health challenges that she's experiencing. God, I pray for the medical staff that she's with. And um, God, I just pray for um, healing. Thank you for family that she's surrounded by. God, I just pray that we would be people that recognize the mission of God on our lives that have been called out from among the nations to proclaim your good news. Equip us, empower us, encourage us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the 1960s, a guy named Marshall McLuhan wrote a book called Understanding Media, and in that book, he coined the phrase, the medium is the message. In the advertising world, what this means is how you communicate an idea is just as important as the idea that you communicate. And even how you communicate an idea changes the idea that you communicate. Classic example of this is uh, back in 1960, Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy debated each other on live television. Those who watched the debate on TV believed that JFK won. Those who listened to the debate on radio believed that Nixon won. They were absorbing the same information through both mediums but those TV viewers saw JFK's youthful, attractive face and believed that he won the debate. The, pay, the way that people perceived the information they were getting affected the way they understood that information. And this is true of us when we seek to be people who preach the gospel who share the good news about Jesus with others, the way we do that affects the way people understand the message. 
What is the gospel? The good news that Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God, has become a perfect human being, has lived a life of total obedience, was murdered on your behalf, paid for your sin on the cross, rose from the dead, and has conquered the power that death has over us and is the rightful king of the universe, and you owe him your allegiance. This is the message that the Christian faith has been built on. Tim Keller writes, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian life. What he means by that is we don't just believe the gospel to get into the faith. The gospel permeates everything about our faith. This is what everything that we are in Christ flows out of. And the mission of God for us that he's called each and every one of us to, if we are Christians here this morning, is that we would be proclaiming this message to the world, to each other, to ourselves. And through that message, men, women, and children would multiply in giving their allegiance to Jesus. You probably know this verse, but Jesus says in Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so how should we go about the work of proclaiming the gospel to believers and non-believers in our lives? Well, this is what Paul is talking about this morning. Paul uses his team as an example to illustrate how to communicate the gospel. And he uses three metaphors that we're going to take a look at. And these are, these are family metaphors. He uses the metaphor of infants or young children. He uses the metaphor of mothers. And he uses the metaphor of fathers. The first one that we're going to look at this morning is infants. If you jump down to verse 7, and this is, we're going we're gonna to jump into a weird tangent right away, so if you're not into that, I'm sorry, but I am, <laughs> and I'm up here. So verse 7 says, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you. That's what the Christian Standard Bible says. I have a little note in my Bible that on the bottom it says, or many manuscripts read infants. And I want to I geek out on a little bit here. If you read the NIV, it says, instead, we were like young children among you. Why is there a difference? You ever wonder that? You, you're reading your Bible, and there's all these notes, and sometimes the, it says, well, some, some things say this, and other things say that, and, and sometimes they're really different, right? Why is that? Early ancient Greek manuscripts were written by hand, in all capital letters, with no punctuation and no spaces. So I, I made uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.7. I made a slide. This is 1 Thessalonians 2.7. Everybody got that? Makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, so this is capital letters in ancient Koine Greek. There's no punctuation. There's no spaces. Um, because of the nature of the slide, there's a lot more lines than there probably would have been. It probably would have been several like run-on lines. But ancient Greek speakers would have been able to understand and read this. 
And when a manuscript, we've talked about this before, but when an ancient manuscript hand-copied wore out, a a professional scribe would come alongside with a new blank piece of paper and would go letter by letter, copying each word over into the new document. And so, if you can go to the next slide, this line right here is two words, the words we were, the verb we were, and then the word infant. And I think the next slide makes that a little clearer. Yeah, there you go. You can see that little red line maybe. Uh, That part of the word is infants. That part of the word is we were. You'll notice that the last letter of the verb and the first letter of the noun are both what we would call the letter N. So a lot of our manuscripts of the New Testament have two Ns the end of we were and the beginning of infants, but some of them have only one end. And I think that's maybe the next slide. Yeah, so if you take that N off there, then you get get rid of the word infant and it becomes the word gentle. So in the field of what's called textual criticism, these are Bible scholars that focus their whole life's work on figuring out what the Bible originally said. They come to this verse and they say, okay, most of the really early copies we have of 1 Thessalonians, one copy we have is, is very, very early. It's from the second century. It says infants. But then later on, there's a bunch of copies that say gentle. And so they have to do a little bit of te- detective work. And that what they assume happens is that this scribe that's going letter by letter by letter, back and forth copying a manuscript copies over that first N and then misses the second N and turns the word infants into gentle. What we find in the evidence of the early manuscripts is that it is really, really likely that this word means infants or young children. Uh, Gordon Fee says, the evidence for epioi, which is gentle, is so much weaker than for nepioi, which is infants, that under ordinary circumstances, no living scholar would accept the former reading as original. But why, in some of our Bibles, does it say gentle? Because it feels weird. It feels weird that Paul is calling himself an infant. But I don't think that's a really good reason for changing the word. Why do I bring something like that up? One, I think it's interesting. I really, I really like textual criticism. That's kind of one of my geeky hobbies. But it's a reminder for all of us that translation is the first step in interpretation. As you study, and I would hope that you would all be students of Scripture, get into the habit of reading the footnotes in your Bible, get into the habit of checking other English translations, Because I think that's the best way to gain a good understanding of what the text is saying. It's also a reminder, I think, of how confident we can be in the text of Scripture. Because the more you study textual criticism, this, this, this branch of biblical studies that's looking for what the original text means, the more you realize that these guys and women have this nailed down. They know that they know that they know what these manuscripts originally said. Even though different Bible translation committees make different choices sometimes, 
they go back to a Greek text that we are absolutely sure that we can be confident in. So, since it is dependent on the flow of my three-point sermon to understand this word as being infants, we're going to go with infants. Paul says that the first way that he communicated his gospel was like an infant. And, and what does he mean by that? Look at verses one and two. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. The first characteristic of infants that Paul points out is boldness. Paul and Silas had just been treated terribly at Philippi. They, you can read about it in the book of Acts. They were arrested, they were beaten, they were thrown in prison illegally. And they could have responded by retreating, by deciding that they were wrong, by rethinking their plans. But their, the opposition to their message actually provoked them to push harder. How many of you have had little children who, who go up to mom for a snack, and mom says no. What do they do next? Go ask dad. See if dad gives them a different answer. This is boldness. And this is a requirement of childhood, right? Think about young children learning to walk. The first time you start to take those steps, you fall down. Learning to walk is a process that is filled with pain, and if little kids quit the first time, no one would ever learn how to do it. The boldness of a child to, be, uh, to, to fail over and over again, to get hurt and say, I'm going to get up and do it again. As we walk as Christians, we come up against suffering and hardship and pushback, but we get back up. And through the Holy Spirit's power, we try again. John Stott writes, people are prepared to suffer only for what they believe in. Paul's team really believed this message and had oriented their lives around it. This is why they had the boldness to proclaim it, even if it was going to be difficult. And in this room this morning, like some of us are tired. I think a lot of us are tired. Maybe, maybe we're tired of not being the majority culture in our country anymore. Or maybe we're, we're tired of the way that some people seem to be misrepresenting Christ in public. Maybe we're tired of being hurt by people that call themselves Christians. And those are all valid reasons to be tired. But Paul, as he illustrates his communication of the gospel, he just doesn't give up. He keeps going. He communicates the gospel with boldness. Moving on in verse 3, he says, For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. The next characteristic of small children that Paul says that they had is truthfulness. What Paul is probably thinking about is this tendency in his day for traveling philosophers to earn a living by going from city to city, tricking people into buying their program. You come into the town and you preach. You offer a deeper set of classes for your method and how to achieve the good life, whatever that looks like for you. You get a bunch of money from people who sign up for your class. 
and then either give them some garbage training or just skip town and take their money. This was a common thing in the world of the Roman Empire. And Paul's team, if you remember from last week, had to leave Thessalonica in a hurry. And he doesn't want the Thessalonians to think that their motives were based in falsehood. He says, we weren't speaking from a place of error. They had really experienced Christ and they they knew what they were talking about. They weren't speaking from a place of impurity. They weren't resorting to falsehood just to get out of a bad situation. They hadn't worked themselves into a corner and needed to lie to get out of it. And they weren't speaking from a place of of deception. They weren't actively trying to manipulate the Thessalonians with their message. And I think this is, this is another example of small children. And I know children learn to lie pretty quickly. But they're also really good at telling the truth. I remember a number of years ago when the missionaries that we support in Indonesia, Rob and Jody Herman, they were on furlough and, and they were here and they spoke. But they actually came over to dinner at our house. And uh, they rang the doorbell and, and we opened the door and they walked in for the first time. And my daughter, Nora, says... I don't like them. I think they should leave. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We had to talk through that. But she was telling the truth. This is is how I'm feeling right now. And I'm going to tell it like it is. We learn how to lie very quickly, don't we? I'm surprised at how effortlessly I can do it sometimes. Why do we lie? We lie to make others think better of us than they would otherwise, especially in a, in a cultural climate that's not particularly friendly to the gospel where we're tempted to not speak the truth. Maybe we don't outright lie, but we, we bend and deflect and massage the truth in order to fit in with people. A number of years ago, I was, I was working at the Salvation Army Croc Center, and I was on the pastoral staff there. I was doing worship, and I was also running their performing arts venue. And I was getting my car worked on. And I I took it to the Honda dealership, and I got one of those courtesy shuttles to take me back to work. And so on the very short drive from Honda to the Croc Center, the, the guy that was driving asked me what I did for a living. And I had two options. I could have said, hey, I'm a pastor. Or I could have said, I I do the performing arts at the Croc Center. And in that moment, in that split second, without hardly even thinking about it, I I said, oh yeah, I I run the performing arts venue at the Croc Center. And I think about that sometimes. After after that happened, like what in me was so, I didn't lie about who I was, but but I knew that in that moment, I could have made an uncomfortable situation and I didn't want to. And so almost instantaneously, I chose to do something else. It's so easy to just deflect and downplay and not be quite so truthful when it comes to the gospel. Paul says that there is only one person that they're trying to fit in with, one person they're trying to please, and that's God, and that he knows everything that they are thinking. Paul appeals to God knowing their hearts a couple times in this chapter. And that's really important for us to remember. Many of us are are really good at acting the right way, having the right words when we know we are being watched. We we come to church and we have a whole set of vocabulary that we put on for our Christian friends. 
There are some sinful actions and attitudes that are really easy to spot, but for most of us, God is the only one that really knows what's going on inside. Are we people that are truthful, not only in the way we speak about Jesus, but about the way we see ourselves as his people? Or do we, in an an attempt to um, placate others or avoid difficult situations, just kind of backpedal a little bit? The third characteristics of young children that Paul talks about is in verse 5. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness, and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles. Instead, we were infants among you. He's talking about innocence. Paul didn't come to the Thessalonians using the gospel to promote some other agenda. They weren't trying to be manipulative. Gary Shogren in his commentary says, principally, they might have tailored their message so as not to affront the rich and powerful. An apostle with the prudence not to cause offense might have attracted patronage, prestige for his message, a pleasant hall in which to teach in, and a well-earned respite from manual labor but they decided not to alter the content of their method of their preaching. This is something that children learn to do pretty quickly, manipulate, but they don't start out that way. Babies don't really have a hidden agenda. They aren't playing the angles to see how to manipulate the situation. They're not only truthful, but they're genuine. An infant cries because she is hungry. He smiles because he, has to, he finds something funny. A baby has to learn how to wear the mask that we all have throughout our lives. Paul says that they had special authority as Christ's apostles, and they could have wielded that power to get others to do things for them, but they didn't. And I think this is a really important thing for us to remember. We aren't responsible for the outcome of our gospel proclamation. We don't have to strategize and manipulate so that people will accept the message. We just are responsible to proclaim the message. And they, they didn't hide the suffering from their audience either. They made the consequences of following Jesus clear. Sometimes I think we try to sugarcoat our gospel proclamation. If you come to Jesus, all of your problems will be fixed. Well, that's true eventually, isn't it? But right now, not so much. Maybe you know someone who who has a story that sounds a little like, you know, I I tried being a Christian for a while, but it just didn't work out for me. It It just didn't do it for me. Many times, those are people that have been given a false gospel, a gospel that says that Jesus is gonna do things for you and solve problems for you that he never promised to. It's important that we share the gospel clearly and truthfully not with an agenda to manipulate or um, deceive. How we communicate the gospel matters. And Paul says, we were innocent like little children or babies among you. But the next metaphor Paul uses starts in the back half of verse 7. As a nurse nurtures her own children, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. 
For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. Paul here identifies himself with a nursing mother, a woman who is breastfeeding her own children. I think in our kind of in our tradition we sometimes struggle with with gender stereotypes in the church. This is masculine and that's feminine. The reality is is the list of what is in each of those buckets changes over time based on our culture, but we get uncomfortable when it seems like men are being too feminine or women are being too masculine. But the scriptures have no problem using all kinds of analogies to explain what the heart of God who is neither male nor female what that what God's heart is like. In Psalm 90, we read, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world from eternity to eternity, you are God. Isaiah 42 says, I have kept silent from ages past. I've been quiet and restrained myself, but now I will groan like a woman in labor, gasping breathlessly. That's God speaking again. In Isaiah 66, as a mother comforts her son, so I will comfort you and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Again, God, who throughout the scriptures self-identifies as a father, has no problem using motherly language to describe how he cares for his people. Paul picks up on this. He uses motherly language here and in other places. In Galatians 4, he says, My children, I am suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. And Paul says that he, as a nursing mother, not only shares the gospel with the Thessalonians, but his whole life. And some of you here are nursing mothers. You didn't just go through the struggle of bringing a new life into the world. You are hour by hour sustaining that life from your own body. You deprive yourself of sleep, of energy, of your own personal preferences and desires, all to make sure that the daily needs of this other person are met. See, Paul wasn't content to have a crusade in Thessalonica, to roll in, to preach the gospel, to give an altar call, and then leave town. He poured his life into these people as long as he was able to be there. Gary Shogren again says, by imparting their very selves, they worked longer hours and got less sleep as a concrete token of love. One of the most powerful ways that the gospel is on display through our church is through people who pour themselves out for others. I, I, I know so many testimonies of people who were saved or, either, or reconnected to God through the ministry of Revelation Church. And over and over and over again, the story is about the way people loved me. It's not the great preaching. It's not the awesome band. They brought me food when I was sick. They spent time getting to know me. They invited me to their home. They gave me a ride. They helped me move. They spent time with me. Paul says this is the example of a mother, giving up her preferences, her energy, her time in order to cultivate life in another person. Paul's team spent time with the Thessalonians in their homes, in their lives. And this is one of the most important ways that we proclaim the gospel to one another. The primary way that we have chosen to 
do this sort of gospel ministry at Revelation Churches through our community groups. We gather in homes throughout the week in small groups for, for meals and Bible study and prayer and building life together. And it would be my desire that all of us would be involved in a community group. If your experience with our church is only what we do on Sunday mornings, it's just not enough. It's good. It is necessary. It's part of the kind of rhythm of our lives that shape us into the image of Christ, but it is incomplete. And I would go so far to say that if you are not deeply investing your life in the lives of other people and letting them invest themselves in you, I guarantee you that your spirituality and your faith is stagnant. Giving yourself away in the lives of other people is a necessary part of being a disciple of Jesus. Ray Ortland writes, self-awareness takes shape in community. We know ourselves not in isolation, but in the pingbacks we get from others. Ortland hits on this idea that the way the gospel sinks into our lives is through intimate relationships with other people. And I, I want to push on this a little bit since we're here. And, and this is, you know, some of us are, are here visiting and just checking out the church, and we're glad you're here. This is a little bit of um, family business. As far as I'm aware, there is only one couple in our church over the age of 50 that is involved in a community group. And I know that if, if you're here and you're not engaged in that kind of ministry, you have reasons for that. And some of those reasons might be valid, but I would suggest that many of them are not. Now, some of you who are younger than that aren't stepping into community either, but I want to speak just for a minute to older people in this room. We need you. So many of us are in our 20s and 30s, and we have no idea what we're doing. We all get together and share our ignorance with one another all the time. We need your help to follow Jesus faithfully. We need your help to continue to believe the gospel when life gets hard. Those of you that have been following Jesus faithfully for 30, 40, 50 years have so much to pour into the young people at this church. So really simple ask. If you're not a part of a community group this morning, will you pray about joining one? What would it take for you to make space in your schedule to give of yourself as an expression of the gospel to others in this church? Is it hard? Is it inconvenient? Yes. <laughs> but remember Paul's analogy of a nursing mother. I've never been a nursing mother, but I know a few. It's hard. The closest I got to this was when our youngest daughter was adopted. We adopted her at birth. And my wife was intent on developing a bond with her that only comes through nursing. And that's hard to do with an adoption. We had all of these contraptions of like formula mixers and little tubes and bags and stuff. And, and I got up at night and I filled them and I warmed them and I made them. And it was a pain and I don't need your sympathy because it's not that big a deal if you're not actually nursing mother. But that's as close as I've ever come. And it was hard. 
and I didn't like it, and I'm so glad that it's over. But we could have settled for less with our brand new baby. But we chose to do something that would impact her in a much deeper way. Paul's mothering of the Thessalonians mattered for his communication of the gospel, for the good of the Thessalonians. Giving himself away relationally to them was how he communicated the truth that God has given himself to us in Christ. The Thessalonians learned how God loved them by the way Paul's team loved them. Paul says he was like an infant among them. He said he was like a nursing mother. And lastly, he said he was like a father. In verse 11, as you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul's third metaphor was for the way that he communicated the gospel was as a father instructing his children with an eye for their future. There is a point where a child has to start doing things on their own, and the father's role is to cheer them on. My oldest is filling out college scholarship applications right now. I can't do that for her. It's her job to do it. But it's my job to encourage her and ask her how it's going and to answer questions about our tax returns. <laughs> and this is God's heart for us. Sometimes many of us, we freak out about knowing God's will. Like, what, what am I supposed to do with my life? What am I, who am I supposed to marry? What job am I supposed to take? Should I quit this job and take another one? Should we buy this house? Should we move to this city? All of that is cycled inside of us and it stirs up anxiety. And sometimes God has a very specific answer to your situation, but God also is training us in righteousness. He is shaping us into the image of his son. And there are some things that God might be calling you into this morning that by faith, and God is trusting you to be wise. An example I like to use about this is, is tying your shoes. When you have a little child learning to tie their shoes, and they come up to you and say, Mommy, will you help me tie my shoes? Daddy, will you help me tie my shoes? It's, it's super cute, and you bend down, and you, you tie their shoes for them. But when that child is 18, 19, 20 years old, they come and ask you to tie their shoes. It's not cute anymore, is it? You don't want them to be in that place of dependence at that point. And while I don't think that's true about everything in the Christian life, I think to some extent it is true about some things, that God is shaping us into people who are wise. He is teaching us good from evil, and he is asking us to make decisions. Paul's team reminded the Thessalonians of who they were, where they were headed, how to get there, and he encouraged them that they could do it. Sometimes as a... As a pastor, and I know some of you are built this way with your personalities, you kind of get a savior complex. You kind of you want to be the one that, that dives in there and fixes everybody's problems for them. But the reality is, like, I can't fix anyone's problems. I can pray. I can share some resources. 
but I can't be the one that swoops in and fixes it. And more than that, it will actually hurt people if I try to become that person. And that goes for all of us. We can't ultimately be the Holy Spirit for one another. We have to let God play that role. But we can encourage each other to live holy lives. We can remind one another of the hope that we look forward to in the kingdom of God one day. We can be examples of God's love in each other's lives. I'm, uh, me and Spencer Lambus have been, been training together for the quarterly half marathon. Spencer's a runner, I am not, um, but I'm trying. And we ran yesterday, and uh, I, thought, I thought we averaged like a 10 and a half minute mile, and I thought that was great, and Spencer was, was, didn't think it was great. It was fine. <laughs> but, but he said, you know what, on race day, you'll probably be doing nine and a half minute miles. Because all of the people and the energy and the hype, it's going to be so much fun. And that's what the church should be, right? That we're all together in this. Jesus wins, right? He is faithful to complete the work that he has begun in you. And we all have the opportunity to run the race together, to keep on keeping on, to encourage one another, to pick each other up when we fall down. Maybe to have a little friendly competition. I don't know if that works in the church metaphor, but it does in the race. And there's going to be times when I want to quit and I need you like an encouraging father to cheer me on because I can't do it alone. And there are going to be times when you want to quit, that you're going to need this community to cheer you on because you can't do it alone, to encourage you, to remind you of the hope you have in Christ, to remind you of the kingdom of God that is coming soon. And Paul, like a loving father, took on the role of encourager and reminder and helper in the lives of the Thessalonians. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they set out to preach the gospel to this church. But then they knew the way they communicated matters. And they acted like young children, like infants, bold, truthful, and innocent. They acted like nursing mothers, giving their whole lives over to these people in an expression of God's love for them. And they acted like fathers, cheering on their children to make the right decisions that they knew that they were capable of. And this is the kind of church that they built at Thessalonica. And I think it's also the kind of church that God wants us to be building here. And as the one true builder of the church, I think it's what God is actually building here. Let's do some Q&R. Okay, backing all the way up to the weird Greek grammar part. Punctuation can make the same words in a sentence mean opposite things. How do we know we have put the punctuation correctly? 
For example, woman, comma, without her man, comma, is nothing, versus woman, colon, without her man is nothing. Same words with opposite points. Yeah. Context is, is, is king, right? Like, we have to understand the context. A sentence all by itself without punctuation can mean a lot of different things. But that's why when we study the scriptures, when um, men and women who have devoted their entire lives to giving us the best text that they have study the scriptures, they, they look at the words, then they look at the sentences, then they look at the paragraphs and figure out the, the ideas that are trying to be communicated. They look at the whole book. They look at the whole scope of the gospel, what we know about Jesus and who Jesus is. And over time, they've added punctuation the way they think that it makes the most sense. And that's not inspired. They could get it wrong. And I think there's been development over the years in that. But um, I think as God has entrusted to his people his word over the 2,000 years that we've had it, um, he has made sure that, that we have it pretty clearly. So yeah, punctuation is... Um, important, but I think we can determine what the right punctuation is in most cases. God is not male or female, but Jesus is male and God's pronouns are always masculine, never feminine. Can we change God's pronouns? Do pronouns matter? (laughs) Yeah, I think, I mean, God has masculine pronouns in his Twitter bio, so that's what the ones we use. Um, I think it is important to recognize that um, while the divine being that created the universe is without gender, he is spirit, he does primarily uh, communicate himself to us as father, as he. And I think it's important to respect that. And there are, there are movements in the church, some of them are more... Um, in good faith than others that would seek to muddy that a little bit, and I don't, I don't think that's appropriate. I do think, however, like I said, God is totally comfortable using feminine language to describe feminine characteristics of his character because the feminine, all of the good things in the feminine come from God too because he created men and women both in his image. Similar question. You said God is neither gender in the scriptures. It's very clear what God's gender is. No. Um, God expresses himself using gendered pronouns. God is not gendered. He is not a physical being, save the human nature of Jesus, which he's obviously a physical male. God himself uh, does not have uh, a gender. He is outside of gender. Okay, those are all the questions. Perfect. If that didn't make any, if that didn't make sense, or if you have more questions about that, I'd love to talk further. Um, but I think it's important to differentiate between the way that God uh, expresses Himself and what God is in His being, and what God is in His being exists before creation, before matter, before time and space, and so the idea of gender in God doesn't doesn't work uh, in his essence. And he contains the attributes of both men and women because he's created both in his image. We're gonna take communion. 
This is another medium that we use to communicate our message of the gospel. The communion table is a communication of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, So as we take the broken bread and the cup together, we remember Jesus' death on our behalf and receive afresh his grace for us. We acknowledge his love for us and we pledge our allegiance to him. So I would invite you, if you are a Christian here this morning, you are welcome to come take communion. There's wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience. You can come take it as the band uh, plays back to your seats and take it at um, when you're ready. You can also stand or sit as we worship. You can come to the prayer rugs up front and kneel and pray if you'd like. I have uh, often say that changing the posture of your body helps us change the posture of our hearts. And to prepare our hearts for the communion meal, we are going to remind ourselves of the allegiance we have to Jesus by reciting the Nicene Creed together. This ancient Christian creed is one of the areas that all Christians worldwide are unified in, in our belief of who God is. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.